Welcome to the Suffering Podcast. Each week, we walk you through how suffering is the way to sustainable success and the path to greatness. We are now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and any other major podcast platform. Please subscribe and like to get the latest episodes as soon as they drop. You can always find our latest episodes at thesufferingpodcast.buzzsprout.com. Please comment. We may even read your comments on future podcasts and even reach out to you for a future guest spot. Like and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for The Suffering Podcast. Here you'll see links to episodes, updates, and inside information on how to achieve greatness through the joy of suffering. So get ready, sit down, and strap in. We are proud to introduce the Dented Development Project. In conjunction with the Suffering Podcast, the Dented Development Project is a nonprofit 501c3 with a mission. That's to help first responders and their families repair dents caused by suffering. Visit us at DentedDevelopmentProject.com and get involved today. Helping us means that we can take care of those who take care of us. Sit your ass Sit your down. Ass down. Sit your ass Sit your down. Ass down. Let's talk about the suffering. It's time to start the pain. Sit your ass down. down. Sit your ass down. And strap in. This is gonna hurt. Gonna hurt. This is gonna hurt. Gonna hurt. Let's talk about the suffering. It's time to start the pain. This is gonna hurt. It's time for the Suffering Podcast. What drives a person to take a job where at any given moment their life could end? This question bounces around in a society of selfishness. When the mantra is, you have to look out for number one. But we find that rare individual who's ready to run towards the danger rather than run away from it. Aside from the immediate dangers from a life of service, there are long-term effects that can be equally detrimental and damaging. The pain of seeing people at their worst, the potential hazards of being in a tragic situation, the wounds and scars can develop over time and may not rear their ugly head for many, many years to come. Well, we're sitting down today with one of those rare angels in this world. We need those that put others' well-being in front of their own. Can you imagine what this earth would look like? If people like our guests today didn't exist, I'm Kevin Donaldson here with Mike Felace, and on this episode of the Suffering Podcast, we meet with one of those selfless people that is so rare. In our studio is retired New York City fireman Billy Bartholomew to talk about the suffering of 9 11 and pay homage to those who sacrificed so that we may never forget. Because he ran into places that everybody else is running out of. Now, Billy, I know you travel quite some distance to get here today. I thank you so much for coming in. We had this scheduled for a prior event, but unfortunately, you know, you, you backed out. You were afraid. You were afraid. <laughs> Was I the reason you had that show a couple of weeks ago? That uh, un- unfortunate circumstances. <laughs> yes, you, you, you were. You were the guy. We're going to get into this in a little bit, but Billy has is suffering, if that's what you want to call it, from cancer due to the recovery efforts of 9-11. And this on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, I think it's very apt that you come in here. And again, so we never forget what you did down there. There's no repayment that can ever be made. I understand that. I don't feel it was like anything 
quote-unquote heroic. We were just doing our job. I know everybody says, Kevin and I both went through situations in work, and everybody said, like, you're a hero and everything. I said, that's what I'm paid to do. Yeah. I, I always felt very, very guilty about that. When so We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. When people come up to you and say, thank you for your service, I don't like that. It doesn't feel right to me. I like that. Yeah, you know, yeah, when they say thank you for what you did, but i do it all again. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but that's why knowing the outcome of what I'm going through and everything. There is a rare individual in the world that that's just, that's what they do. That's what, that's how they're built. Thankfully, there are people who are built like that, but there's not everybody in the world is built like that. And because of the people in this room, we are built like that. We don't understand the other way of being built. Now, once you get outside and you start realizing that there are certain people that need those to run towards the danger because they're always going to be running away. And even in sometimes in, in the job that you were in, police and fire, I'm sure there's people running away from the danger. Not everybody yes. was running towards. But yeah. before we really get into it, I want to get into this week's social media question. And it's really not a question as, as much as it is a comment. Again, we're coming up on the anniversary of 9-11, a 20-year anniversary. I can't believe that it's been 20 years already. Steve writes, 9-11 is like a spider web that in some way has ensnared all of us and affected us in different ways. From the loss of those in the towers to the first responders to the soldiers in the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. We all know people who have paid a price, whether that price is PTSD or loss of life or injury. Steve asks, why have we forgotten? Now, Billy, there's, there's a climate without touching too much into sticky situations we don't like to get into. Why do you think that there's this level of apathy? Because people seem to, people forgot real quick. Why do you think that's going on today? I have no idea. It was promised that we would never forget. And obviously, that has a lot to do with the media, you know, the way it's portrayed. I guess it's 20 years. It's a young generation now. I mean, they weren't there. They didn't understand everything that exactly happened and why it happened. I can see that. I can see that. Mike, what do you think? Why are, why are people forgetting? Like Billy said, it's, it's a new generation now. I mean, my son was three months old when it happened, you know, so they don't, didn't really even live through it. You mm -hmm. know, I just, I just think it's sad that everybody forget right after nine 11, this country was never more solid and united. You couldn't buy an American flag everywhere you went. There were flags all over the yeah. place, flags on cars, flags on overpasses. That Annan flag company, I think it's in Clifton on route. 46, there was lines out the door to go get an American flag. Apollo flag. Yeah. Apollo flag. That's yeah. what it was. Yeah. There, were, there were lines of people on the street when we were busing down to, to the site, you yeah. know, Grand Zero, just standing there clapping as the buses went by, you know. And it's, it's really sad that we are so divided now, you know. I have a theory on this one, and it's only a theory. I'm a jackass, man. I'm, I'm, uh, Thank God you said it. I'm me. a jackass, <laughs> and I come up with these crackpot theories. One of the major things I believe is the people who have so easily forgotten, it's because they never went through, I'm going to be shameless here, the suffering of what that was like. You know, Billy, you were down there. You were, in, you were active in the recovery. I remember the anxiety. I was I was a very young police officer. I remember the anxiety of going, what the fuck is going on? Or, uh, like I thought the job I signed up for was about to change so dramatically. And I remember going home that night. They had us on different posts. 
and watching the TV and wondering what's next, what's going on now. You, you just didn't know. That was a form of suffering. If I had not gone through that and not felt that, the loss of people that were in the towers or first responders that I knew, if I had not felt that, maybe it would have been easier for me to forget. But I will never forget the feelings of that day. And to this day, I can never watch anything on TV. So, Steve, I really appreciate you coming up with that and saying those words. They mean a lot to me that obviously you have never forgotten. And just spread the word that there are these brave heroes out there and people inside those towers that are never coming home. And that's what people need to remember. So, Billy Bart. That's me. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about yourself. um, Well, you're friends with Gene Halberger. Friends with Gene Halberger. So, that's the connection here. And that's why we have, that's why we've connected. I, I am the friend he mentioned several times during his interview that was with him the day Jimmy took his life. Now, you had seen that before, and you you had seen loss of life. Yes. It's my understanding that this was that was a new thing. to like he, does, he didn't deal with that all the time, Gene. So when he saw his son, not only is it his son, but there was a shock. The first time you see somebody who has either taken their life or lost their life, it's a shock. It's a shock to the system. You don't really know how you're going to react until you see it. Especially when it's one of your own. Right. Yeah. Now, you, somebody who's been on these horrific scenes, know how to take command, know what to do. You go into that first responder firefighter mode. Is that kind of how you how you worked? Pretty much exactly how it. Gene was just beside himself. You know, he couldn't even function. So I took hold of Jimmy, held him in my hands, you know, felt like... He just needed somebody to hold him and made sure the gun was secured. You know, I called 911. There was a lot of things that happened that Gene doesn't remember. He doesn't remember anything. Yeah, yeah mean, he was in total shock. Yeah. He was in total shock. Basically sat there holding, giving him comfort as he passed on. But what you did for Gene, because yeah. we've, ha- we've had conversations, Gene and I have had conversations specifically about you, and he credits you for being able to continue. And that, my friend, is the greatest gift you can give anybody. I don't know what would have happened if I wasn't there. Like he said to me, you know, how do you handle it? And I said, because I know there was no other place I'd rather be. As I said in the beginning, there's people who go out and they operate well inside traumatic events. Mm-hmm. I can't put my finger on it. I don't think it's anything you can really train. Yes, you can train what to do and steps you need to take. But you can't train to have that switch that shut off where you go into that command mode. Yeah. I I think that's ingrained as in us as first responders that you really step up in a time of need. That's a good way to put it. Step up in a time of need. You know, I I don't think there are plenty of times where, I mean, you go into a crazy situation and you don't even think about it. Right. Then when you get back in your car, you just sit back and say like, holy shit, what just happened? Well, after the scene was cleared, everybody was taking care of who was still there. Did you sit down and just decompress for a minute? As Mike said, when we go on certain calls that are hairy and stuff goes haywire, after the call, because you don't even think about it. You're in, yeah. you're in like an automatic mode. After the call, oftentimes you'd sit in your car and you just, you take that deep breath. You go, what the fuck just happened? And it starts to hit you, really. Well, yeah. Again, after the first couple officers on the scene, I said, I got this. Please take care of him, Gene. Make sure he's okay. Make sure he doesn't do anything. 
then when the rest of the EMS finally came and they took charge of Jimmy, we were trying to figure out how to get Noreen. So I said, I'll, I'll go get her. I asked the police for an escort there, which at first they didn't want to do, but then they said, okay, well. So we'll you had to give notification to his wife? I went to where she worked and, you know, she asked me what happened. I said, just you need to go home. I really couldn't say it to her. And then I drove her car home from the hospital because she went with the police officer. Mm-hmm. And, then, you know, I had a few minutes alone there to think about it. And So what was the initial yeah. thoughts going through your head? Why? Why didn't you come to me? You know, I've protected your father his whole life. <laughs> you know? Uh, Would Gene say the same thing that you protected him or did he protect he, you? He, Gene could handle himself, but he always knew I was standing behind him. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's like that. that As you can see, I'm not a small person. No, no. Billy's, that, Billy's just very, he's very broad, very stout type of individual that I would not want to tangle with. It's like that little guy who, who's always brave when he's got the big guy standing behind him. You know? <laughs> and he looks around and brave no, guy. That's our other friend. <laughs> <laughs> so you were a New York City fireman at this time of, of Jimmy's loss. Were you retired already? I was already retired. Yes. Yeah. So when did you start your, your service as a fireman? 1991. 91. So you did how many years before you were forced to retire? Uh, 17, 17 and a half. 17 and a half yeah. years. Retired with bad knee, bad lungs. And aside from Ground Zero which I'm sure, I don't know what your responsibilities were at Ground Zero. Aside from that, you've seen some hairy stuff. Some, some very good fires. You know, we, yeah. I worked in the Bronx right in Yankee Stadium. We had a few. You couldn't have just thrown a match in Yankee Stadium? <laughs> <laughs> He's a Phillies fan. <laughs> yeah, I'm a Mets fan. That's even worse. <laughs> even better. Even more of a reason to do it. Jeez. Um, yeah, we had you know a lot of work in our neighborhood, but I had great officers at, you know at that time the officers again 911 caused a vacuum for all the old older guys to retire and I don't think they've still recovered from it any officer you had then you just know they wouldn't lead you, you know, unless something really really strange happened they wouldn't lead you anywhere where you it's so, important to have that that yeah. leadership structure yeah if you don't trust your leadership it's you really become an ineffective yeah. firefighter they, they all had 30 plus years on the job and you know it was, it's amazing. I've seen everything three times, not you know, not once. Sometimes you get those book smart supervisors yeah. that really never saw the shit. Mm-hmm. I know we and see that a lot. In, that. We see that a lot in law enforcement. Yeah. That's what happens. You know, now there's young guys with you know, five, six years getting promoted because there's nobody else to fill the ranks. Was this a calling for you? Was this something that you felt compelled to do, or was <sighs> we had an NYPD homicide detective? He's like, nah, just you know, I went in, seemed like a good job, filled it out. That's pretty, it, it pretty much fit. My, my Growing up, my father used to tell me all the time, take the police test. Like that, you know, I, I didn't want to be a police officer. That's the thing, I didn't want to be a fireman, I swear to God. I was always afraid I'd use my gun too fast or not fast enough, and neither of those are good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I've never needed a weapon to defend myself, so I just didn't feel it was for me. And then I had some friends that were firemen, they said, why don't you look into this. I said, what's it all about? They said, well, you know, we work 24 hours. And I was always construction, landscaping. Mm-hmm. We work 24 hours, then we're off a few days, so you can still do other things. And it just fit me well. Yeah, if you're you a know? second job guy, fireman is the yeah. one to have. It, it fit me very well. <laughs> you know, there's different jobs in the police department. There's different jobs in the fire department, especially in New York City. And I was in the truck, which meant your knowledge of construction helped you you know how the building was built, and you knew where the fire would go, and you would, you know, you know how to 
take doors and do all that stuff. So it just fit me very well. Was it just a job to you or was it once you became a fireman or is it something that, was it what you expected? It was more fun than I expected. (laughs) (laughs) We had a lot of fun together. I mean, that was the, the best part about the job was the guys you worked with. We just had, we had fun. And if you got a fire, that was even better. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, I guess it's like summer camp for a bunch of guys. At times it could be. Uh, you'd cook a good meal. You know, I was always a pretty decent cook, so you'd cook for everybody and you'd have a family. It's, that's what was different than the police department. You'd have a family atmosphere. You know, the officers eat with you, and it's just you know, officers live with you. Right. So it, it just made it, you know, you, you're going to work, but it was like a second home kind of. In law enforcement, I never considered it work. I worked construction for 10 years before I got into it. You're going to tell me working a Sunday into Monday midnight's not work? Hmm. Oh, my God. Brutal. It wasn't a job to me. It was just something I loved doing. It was like, okay, I got to go in today. It was never one day in my career, in my 20 years, that I dreaded going to work. I just loved doing it. It it allowed you to make a lot of family events, too, that, you know, a lot of people wouldn't be able to make. You know, you could always arrange your schedule to make sure you were at the... Not the father-daughter dance or the dance recital. And it's, or, you know, it's like, something different every day. You well, know, that's, it's yeah, not, that's it's not thing, sitting yeah. in a cubicle, you know, working nine to five yeah. and pushing papers around. All new Suffering Podcast gear is here. The show depends heavily on our supporters to get the word out. Let people know that suffering is a team sport and no one is alone in their struggles. Wearing the Suffering Podcast merchandise accomplishes that goal. Check out our store at thesufferingpodcast.com or check our show notes for the link. Your support and love means everything to us. When's the last time a, a young child came up, bragged about his dad being a, an accountant? <laughs> you know, and then listen, nothing against accountants. Thank God they're there because I don't like doing the things they do. But that's that, that was always very, very cool to me because it was they make movies about what we've done. They make movies about our profession. Yes, they did make the accountant movie, but there was other things aside yeah. from that. Um, there had to be a backstory to those movies. Yeah, there was a backstory. It's not just about being an accountant where yeah. firemen, you know, the, some of the greatest movies ever made were, were fireman movies. Backdraft came out while I was in probing school. So. <laughs> oh, God. I remember years ago, I saw that movie, what was it, Towering Inferno. Yeah. That, I mean, was that, that's was that so far That was so far back. That, it was, that was like the first fire movie. I wouldn't become a fireman right after I saw that movie. But as far as backdrafts go, and, and that's a problem. You, I teach my kids now. So my kids are very young, and I'll watch a cop movie or something. I'm like, yeah, that, that's a bad representation of what a cop is. I said, something simple. They say, why? He said, look at his finger. It's on the trigger. No cop in the world will ever put their finger on the trigger until it's ready to go. Index. It's Yeah, it's, you, you put it right down the slide. And that's how you know... When you see that in a movie, it bumps it up. And is that the same with firemen? First of all, you can't see a thing in a fire. It's, like I said, 10, 10 cents of fire and 90, 90 cents of smoke. It's You can't see anything. You're basically crawling around on your hands and knees. So they had to do certain things to be able to film it. The fire doesn't act the way it did in the movie. That's all. You know, I, uh, I can't watch police movies. Yeah. You know, it's just, I, call it, I say it's too Hollywood for me. It's. Uh, I think the last one I watched was uh, Brooklyn's Finest, and that's only because our friends in that movie, uh, Jerry Spezial. So that's the only. I think that's the last cop movie I watched. There was a movie with Joaquin Phoenix called Ladder Four Nine, which was actually the company I worked in in the Bronx. Oh, really? Wow, and cool. that was pretty good at showing. Didn't he die in the end of that though? Yeah, he does. Yeah, that. Does. I don't know, man. 
<laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know whether I can watch it's that. It's the reality. You yeah. know, I mean, it happens. Well, over so. over your career, how many of your colleagues did you lose? That I personally knew, not until 9-11. Right. But, you know, there were, you lose like two or three a year. Yeah. You know, uh, it was never good. So you're sailing by the time 9-11 comes around, September 2001, you're sailing. You know, if you got a, you're 10 years in, you're riding this wave, you like your job. Mm-hmm. And now, all of a sudden, were you working that day, or were you off? Believe it or not, we, we uh, had a rider cut match with another firehouse out in Pennsylvania. So there was two firehouses, about probably 100 guys at this golf course. They came, got us off the course. We're sitting in a pro shop watching. All of a sudden, the tower fell. And we just all got in our cars and drove back. I got down there probably around midnight that night. They relocated us, and you know, we went to the site, and... How close were you to the site? In it. You were in it. You were actually ripping stuff out. Yeah. Yeah, we were just... After after a day, you realized there wasn't anything we were going to do. Well, it was so hot, too. I mean, it was still burning, right? It was hot, and you saw the, the bucket brigades where guys were you know, passing buckets out. But there was steel and concrete bigger than a Volkswagen. How are we going to move it? So you realize, you know, if you didn't... Actually, I have a good friend who was one of the ones in the tower when it... Uh, when it collapsed? Yeah, Miracle out of six, whatever, and he was from another company. Oh, isn't that the, the Nicolas Cage movie? Or the, the, one that, the one that survived it? They underneath? were police. They were police, underneath. yeah. Yeah, no, these were firemen. Oh, okay. About 10 firemen survived inside the towers. When it collapsed? Yeah. Listen, if you survive that big of a building falling on top of you, you... you yeah. <laughs> like Superman stuff. Yeah, listen, there, there's, there's something special for you planned. Mm-hmm. But that's the stuff that you were, hope, you were hopeful. You're like, oh, man. But, but then, if you really start thinking about it, if you're really that hopeful, you mean tell me somebody's trapped underneath all that debris? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. With the, like you said, with the heat and the smoke and... Not know just and and they can't. Knowing. It's not like they're in a void where they can yeah. walk around. They're gonna. They're trapped. So they they got them out. Of the, you know, pretty much at the end of the day, they were out, and then you, you knew there was nobody. There was nothing left. We couldn't find a desk or a, or a chair. I mean, everything was just just pulverized into a gray dust. It was crazy. I was working a a side detail that day, and I had to be in work at three o'clock that night that afternoon. Where I was. It's down in the meadows, Bergen County, and you could look right over and see the New York skyline from where we were at. There's one street in my town that it's on a cliff and a perfect view of the you know skyline. And one of our guys came on the radio and said he was doing traffic because a lot of cars were going up to that one road. He goes, uh, he says right over there. He says, I don't know if you heard, a plane just flew into the World Trade Center. So I turn around and look. But over you my think shoulder. it's like a Corey Lydell type yeah. of situation? A plane accidentally hits the tower. Yeah, it used to happen a lot. Yeah. So I turn over, I look, and I see the tower smoking. So I turn on the TV we had there, and I put on the news, and I'm watching it. And I just happen to look over, and I actually saw the second plane hit the the next, mm-hmm. the, you know, the other building. So I called the guy that was running the side job. I said, I'm out of here. I said, I got to go. Ran home, put my uniform on, went into work, and our chief, anybody who came in, he gave us a car, and he said, you go to this hospital, pick up doctors, and drop them off at Giant Stadium, because that was a staging area. Mm-hmm. So we did that for about two hours, and then all of a sudden they just stopped us, and they said, "There's not much of a need for doctors over there right now." Yeah, which to me was saying that not too many people are surviving that. Our yeah. friend Clint McGregor, he had to go through sift through the rubble in Staten Island. In Staten Island, they were finding wallets with rubber bands around them that people were chucking out the windows so people could identify them, mm-hmm. and that that that's 
it's just a, it's a monumental thing. I, I hate to make this comparison, but what you did for Gene and, and his son, Jimmy, was it the same mindset as when you're going through this rubble? Was it, this is my job. This is what I do. Cause I, I'm sure if you started thinking about what was going on, it, I don't know whether you'd be as effective. I was, again, you get into a mode where you realize, listen, you're not finding anybody alive. If I could find pieces of people closure that, that could be later identified, it would give somebody, you know, maybe some young kid be able to bury his father. Right. You know, or, and I stayed, I was there for pretty much from the beginning till the end. I was there when they, you know, we were just raking through the last of the debris and I found two or three four inch pieces of bone. Yeah. And I felt like, well, that's the reason we're still here. No I mean, flesh on them, I guess. The no, time, yeah, no. Just, just, yeah. Burn just, them right Just off. a piece of bone. My gosh. And, uh, you know, <laughs> how I found it, how I saw it, I don't know. You just had a rake and you were raking through this just gray dust. But I was able to find a few pieces. And I felt like, you know what? This might have given somebody, if there's enough DNA left in it where they can identify a piece of somebody, then, you know, this was all worth it. Now, somebody who was down there in an active recovery situation, Mike and I talk about the ways that we cope with tragic situations, and that's through some really dark humor, really super dark humor. And it's a side of first responders that we don't like to show the world too much because they're going to think we're really fucked up. Going through in that tragic situation, you're, you're trying to wrap your mind around it. Was there dark humor there? Maybe not in the first couple of days, but after stuff started coming through. Oh, just you're there with a team of guys you work with, so you, the, the, the kitchen ball breaking and uh, humor, yeah. you know, never left. So uh, well, if that's what you mean, yeah, well, that's how you deal with yeah. that stuff. That's how you deal with yeah. the tragedy. You, you break each other's chops all day long, and then you know. if a regular civilian heard half of the things we said, oh god, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the firehouse kitchen table is not a place for the weak uh, <laughs> soul, or whatever you want to call it, weak. Uh, yeah, there's really not much yeah. off limits. Yeah, no, there's nothing. Off you know, my whole career, I think I met one police officer who who put a limit on something and it was it was about his wife and nobody really ever got really hard after somebody's wife you just know with this guy you never said you know you could say whatever you else you wanted you just couldn't say anything about his wife but that's how again that's the 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 coping mechanism you're down there for from the beginning until the end i'm assuming no masks they they gave us masks but you couldn't wear them you just after after three minutes you just you couldn't breathe. So you could probably you, so take it off. Filled with soot and everything else that you couldn't even get air through it. Yeah. It was just, it was ridiculous. You know, so. So you go back, site's cleared. You go back, you've done your job. You're getting, you know, thankfully at this time, you guys were the true heroes of New York City. Must have felt pretty good. You continue with your job. Was there any after effects of your time down at Ground Zero? Psychologically. No. I know there's some medically. No psychological nightmares, none of that stuff. No. You just, you shut it down, you're ready to go. And that's the difference between firemen. See, and this is something the police world is lacking. I always heard firemen talk to each other, police talk about each other. Because of that summer camp type of atmosphere where you're living with each other, did you guys in the firehouse talk it out about, you know, you, hey, you okay? Grief counselors. Grief counselors, anything like that? No. Not in the firehouse. I mean, if there were guys that needed to go for it. Right. Uh, but no, we didn't. We just went about our business. You know, we it, was, it. it was over. Talked about the, you know, the guys we lost, a couple of, one of my former bosses we lost, and a few other people that we you know, had, 
had passed through the house. Maybe there might have been some other people, but like I told you, I don't suffer from that stuff. So, you know, it was just all right, next phase of your life. Some people consider it like the cost of doing business. Yeah. You know, it's it's something that we signed up for. But then you had to go to the funerals. Went to a lot of funerals. And a lot of funerals. And I don't know about you, but I cannot handle bagpipes. <laughs> I can't handle <laughs> Amazing Grace. Oh, I can't, it. I can't yeah. handle My next door neighbor is a retired cop, and he's in the, the, the bagpipe band. <laughs> it could be like a random Monday morning, and all of a sudden you hear him yeah, practicing. You'll hear, you'll hear him yeah. out in the... I, I, I like them. You know, just... They just they bring back too many bad memories of me. Yeah. The line of duty death, those funerals are the greatest, worst experience you ever went through. Yeah. I mean, it is fit just to see the camaraderie and everything else, yeah. and, and you're there to pay respect for a fallen brother or sister. Yeah. And it, it is. Unfortunately, it takes tragedy to bring us together, and 9-11 is the, the prime example of that. You're psychologically okay. That's not what Gene told me, but anyway, <laughs> anyway he said you, you're a pretty messed up guy, but... Not from 9-11. I can't, I can't argue that. <laughs> <laughs> but you've had some medical ramifications from this. Yeah. I have multiple myeloma, which is a bone marrow cancer. So when people say, oh, where is it? I say, uh, anywhere I have a bone. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a great, Bill, you've got a great attitude. You've got cancer from 9-11. Just like, oh, it's, it's just, you know, it is what it is. It could be in any of 206 places in my <laughs> yeah, body. Yeah, pretty much everywhere. And how did they directly relate that to 9-11? Was there a test that they were able to do? Uh, well, there were certain cancers they expected, mm. like six or eight cancers they were watching for, and then they've added quite a few to the list. Again, I found out I had cancer because I was skiing and was having pain in my hips. I you know, skied most of my whole life, and you know, I fell a couple of times. My wife looked at me, and she's like, you don't fall. What's going on with you? So I went to get a... I figured I'd get a cortisone injection in my hip because they were hurting a little bit. Right. And thankfully, that doctor knew what he was looking at when he looked at the x-ray. And he was an orthopedic. He wasn't an oncologist. But he's like, you're going to an oncologist tomorrow. I looked at him and said, excuse me? How long? What, what year was this? Um, 2014. So it took that long. 2015. Took that long Four, to metastasize. 14 years. Yeah. And bring, you know, yeah. Wow. I retired in 2007, again, with bad knee, um, bad lungs. The lungs were... It was was the lung the lung issue, do you, is that from ground zero? Or the lung issue just, was from ground zero. It was yeah, from ground yeah. zero, okay. But, and, you know, again, if you have a knee and a lung, they looked at them and said, all right, we'll give it to you for the knee. We, you know, we'll retire you for your knee. And they have too many people in box A. They can put you in box B. They're going to put you in box B. Oh, know? hey, listen, whatever gets yeah, you out, right? Exactly. The doctor was right. Again, that's probably the only... Moment I had where, you know, after he told me, I went out in my car, did a quick cry, you know, and said, what the hell is going on? But then said, all right, let's deal with it. You made that choice. Yeah. You made that choice to. I was right there, right there in the car. I was like, put my head up and said, all right, let's do what we got to do. Yeah. Now, I know my family has a lot of cancer risks in it. And I've watched my family members go through chemotherapy for certain things that they really shouldn't mm. go through chemotherapy, like their pancreatic cancer. Guess what? Yeah. I'm not getting chemotherapy. I, I won't know until it happens to me, but if something like that comes along, I've always said, Hey, listen, I'm not, I'm going to go out the, I'm going to go out strong as I can go out. You chose to fight it and you're fighting a pretty damn good fight. You're making some headway. You said there was a treatment that you recently had that seems to be working very well. I, I have some friends that are a little more religious than me. I tell them I'm, I'm a walking miracle. 
when, once I called the fire department and told them I had cancer, I actually have a friend who's a fire department doctor. And he immediately got me to Sloan. And he's like, you're going to Sloan. You know, you're not going to your local hospital. It's an amazing place. It's hard to explain. I tell people everybody should have my cancer experience because I'm so well taken care of by the people that take care of me, even still the fire department. It's, it's amazing how we still take care of our own. There's something called the family transport unit, where if I have to go into New York City for something, they come pick me up in my front door. The guy spends the whole day with me, drops me off at Sloan, waits for me to be finished. If I stay in the hospital for four or five days, my wife needs to ride down, or my kids, they pick them up. It's just, it's amazing how well as well we they take should care of our own. As well they should. But not, not everybody could, you know what I mean? The, because it's a volunteer thing where guys volunteer to drive and stuff and... We should be doing that. Yeah. We should be doing that. You were willing to give your life, and you said it in the beginning, if I had a chance, I'd do it all over again. So you don't regret any of the decisions that you made becoming a fireman to go to ground zero. This unfortunate thing happened to you, so they should be taking care of you for that courage and that bravery and that willingness to give yourself up for a greater good. I say it's it's easy to, to continue to maintain a good attitude when there's so many people around you, you know, that, that help you. My wife's amazing. She's, <laughs> she's telling me, you're going to go there and tell them everything's fine. And yet we're all the ones suffering around you. <laughs> you well, that's a big part of it. That's a, a she's a, like, I worry about you every day. I don't, you know, I'm like, just, what's it going to do? It's just, you know, if I got to go in for more chemo, I'll go in. If I got to do this, I'll do this. You know, it's just, well, what, what is the prognosis that they gave you with your well, cancer? Well, my cancer is treatable, but it's not curable. It, okay. it will get me someday. But they are making great strides in getting closer to it being curable. Right. I've had a stem cell transplant. And then I went through a, a couple of different experimental treatments. And then I had something called a CAR T-cell, which was uh, where they take your own white blood cells, re-engineer them, and teach them how to fight the cancer. That lasted 15 months with no treatments or anything, which was fantastic. That actually failed. You know, it ran its course in January. Came home, tried a couple other different trials. They didn't work, so that's why I went in for like this uh, five-day chemo treatment. It's a conventional chemo, which uh, most of the stuff I've been doing is immunotherapy. That's what CAR T-cell is. And knocked the numbers way down. And now we're just hopefully getting into... Another trial that they have, something with their engineering molecules that grab onto your white blood cell, grab onto the cancer cell, and makes them fight. Just amazing what they're doing. Well, what, and, are, what are your physical limitations? Physically, how do you feel? Well, I'm, I'm not as strong as I used to be. Okay. I, um, you know, so I'm, I'm still not going to fuck with you. Know? <laughs> <laughs> but the chemo's got to knock some of your strength out, I too. I got about a minute in me, and then I'll run around you, you for a minute. <laughs> exactly. Um, I have pain everywhere. Some days but worse than others? It's just pain. Do you, are you on a pain management regimen? No. no. No? You just deal with it? Yeah. No. I take, I, if I'm going to golf, I'll take an ibuprofen just to, because I know I'm going to be sore. I just deal with it. <laughs> it is what it is. I don't know. Again, like I said, I don't know how to. You keep asking me why, you kept asking me, why do you want me in there? I don't feel like I'm suffering. Why do you want me in there? I don't feel. Because your attitude Everybody should have your attitude. If everybody had your attitude, this world would be such a better place. I don't know anything else. The Suffering Podcast family has grown. The Hackensack Brewing Company is an American success story. 
Born in the basement and developed by true beer practitioners, the Hackensack Brewing Company has emerged as a leader in the brewing community with their four staple brews. The Fairmount Pale Ale, the Parking Lot Pilts, the Musket Haze New England IPA, and the Moments Notice Irish Stout. But they don't stop there. The Hackensack Brewing Company has produced over 50 seasonal and specialty craft beer throughout their history, with the best yet to come. Don't get caught drinking a product developed by an impersonal corporate machine. The guys at the Hackensack Brewing Company suffer for their beer. Without the beer to back it up, the brand is nothing. Visit them at hackensackbrewing.com or check the show notes for the link. Here you'll find their dynamic and changing list of specialized brews. The Hackensack Brewing Company provides convenient online ordering and pickup. The Hackensack Brewing Company. Peace. Love. Beer. 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 I try to be strong for the people around me. Well, that's the. My wife keeps looking at me. She goes, I'm supposed to be strong for you. And I'm I'm like, no, I'd I'd rather. I'm the strong one. Just let me be the strong one. You. I mean, I don't know what else to tell her. Your family, when they find out about your diagnosis, what is their initial reaction? Uh, Well, me being me, when I was told I had cancer. You you didn't present it in like a cake or anything like this. Hey, surprise. Surprise, I got cancer. (laughs) My then. Girlfriend, fiance, whatever you want to call her. Um, her best friend had lost her husband to colon cancer two months before. My wife and her and it, uh, my wife's youngest son, my stepson, and her daughter were going to Disney together. And I found out in February they were going in March. So I said, I'm not telling her. She will not go to Disney. And I can't imagine that little girl was looking forward to the, you know, she just lost her father. Now, now I'm going to ruin her trip. I'm like, no way. That's a slippery slope. Cause although you're doing a very honorable thing, when you finally do tell them, if, unless you backdate the, or forward well, date, yeah. you're going to catch some shit for that one. I, I kept it, kept it hidden for a month. Again, we, we, we had that ski house for the whole month of February. I found out at the beginning of February. I didn't ski the whole month, which is, you know, I'd go up there and just, Go to the bar. <laughs> you know, Put the fake it, cast and, on. You let know. everybody else ski. <laughs> uh, I was getting a message from the fire department nurse to tell me what to do. And then I had a, a card from an oncologist at Sloan. My daughter saw that. So they're all asking questions. And I'm like, no, 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 everything's fine. And then my wife read a text like the two days before she's supposed to leave. Oh, no. And she's like, like she wanted to kill me. Oh my God! And I said to her, "It's cancer's not going like, to get you. Your wife is. <laughs> I can't. I can't go." I said, "You have to go. Yeah. You have to go on this trip. I'm fine. I'm doing what I have to do. Just you have to go on this trip because if you don't, I will regret it." That was the beginning. And then when she got back, I told my daughters. My daughters lost their mother to breast cancer, and was hard on them. And my older daughter, who's a nurse or is going to be a nurse, and she, she ended up working. I'm at Columbia, not not at Sloan, but at Columbia as an oncology nurse. I'm like, how the hell do you have the strength to do in a, to do this, knowing your mom passed away from cancer? I have it. So she's a very strong young woman. Well, they're trying to make a difference and change something they don't like. Yeah. My younger daughter's doing very well too. I mean, they, I think they see me, they see the changes in me. Like I said, I'm you know I don't move around as much. I've, I'm the only cancer patient to gain weight. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, everybody else gets skinny. I'm gaining weight because I can't move around the way I used to. You know, that's my luck. <laughs> I, I just think it's amazing the positive outlook you have. That it, it's it's that real cool. It's unbelievable. It? I I, was, I, I don't want to say I was dreading coming up here today, but I didn't want to come up here. We've heard some really dark stuff on here. You know, Gene's 
Gene's episode included. And you just sit in a car, and like you said, you got to decompress after it. And I thought that's how today was going to go, but you got a great outlook on it. That is, that's fantastic. I guess I don't know anything else, you know. I guess that you want to make I'm too stupid to know. But I'm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, right now, you are a physical representation and manifestation of 9 11. Mm-hmm. That's what you are to me. You are the reason I am sad on this day and thankful on this mm-hmm. day. And I remember everything that's going on because of the things that you did and your outlook on life. I can't think of a better person. Listen, if, if, I'm, you I'm, have I'm every, very lucky. You have I'm every right lucky. to come in here and go, oh, yeah, it's fucking got cancer because of this dust and shit you had every right to do that but you chose not to and and it's it's an admirable thing i'm i'm very lucky i i tell you i have a great woman uh she has three kids and they've become amazingly close where'd you find that one because i I might (laughs) i might start shopping for one we we live half the time down in hilton head our Mm -hmm. our go-to place our happy place half the time up here you know, our kids vacation together. It's it's just an, I've built an amazing life. It pisses me off a little bit that it might not last as long as it could. But well, we all have an expiration date. Yeah, but I've I've experienced so much good, good, and so much love that I'm lucky. You know, it's kind of crazy to say. Are you tied in with the the funding that goes along with the cancer down in? The World Trade Center, it's what the World Trade Center Foundation, is that what it's called? What, for, for funding to pay for your treatment. I'm covered by the World Trade Center Health Insurance. Okay. Which is phenomenal, too. Again, I, uh, I know somebody who had the same cancer as me, and they had to sell their home and move to Florida, you know, because he's not, he was a volunteer fireman. He never went to Ground Zero. He wasn't part of it. They've taken care of everything. Isn't that the one John Stewart was fighting for, Mike? Yeah, I believe so. It, it, yeah. He, he extended the victim's compensation fund. Which okay. Is, you know, I got a nice little settlement. That's kind of how we got our nice place in Hillenhead. Wonderful. Hey, yeah. If there's anybody that deserves it, it's. You seem yeah, almost. It was, it was so modest, you Bill, know, but it was good. It was, Billy's you know. telling me this stuff, and, and you have this look on your face like you're a little bit. Like you shouldn't. Of taking the payout, you're like, oh, you know, I got like know. almost embarrassed. Like embarrassed. Yeah. I, I never, I never thought I shouldn't take it, but you know, I'm thankful for it. Yeah, you know, and mostly thankful for the for the health insurance because I'm I'm a good twenty thirty million dollars into my coverage, and I've never had a copay. A cent. Well, say that again. Uh, the the things that they've put me through and twenty or thirty million. Oh, at least. Holy hospital God. stays, and I, I've had shots that were sixty thousand dollars a shot. Holy cow. Yeah, it's crazy. I've never had a copay. So, again, I keep saying I'm extremely lucky. Everybody should have my cancer experience because I'm very well taken care of. And it's very, very easy to maintain a positive attitude when there's so much good around you. That's just the way I look at it. We're coming to the end of this thing here. And this outlook of life that you have, which is really contagious and really infectious, you've gone through, whether you believe it or not, you have gone through certain sufferings in life. You just chose not to be a victim from it. From the suffering that has happened in your life, what do you think you have learned from it? Hmm. To not suffer. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kev, like you said before, suffering is a choice. Yeah, to not, you know, to not let things... That's a big shout-out to, to Kevin Kearns on that one. Yeah. Suffering is a choice, and you've chosen not you to know, do it. I, I can't imagine the loss that Gene suffered, even though I suffered part of it with him. I don't know... I would still have to live my life every day. I wouldn't be able to, you know, I would still have to, if I was, if I was working, if I wasn't retired, you know, I'd still have to 
function, I guess. That wouldn't make get me through it. Kind of, you know the, what I mean? The sun always rises. Yeah. And if you have that outlook on life, you'll be you'll be all right. You know, a lot of people just at that point they quit. Yep. You know, they quit and that's when that's when the cancer really will get you. Really yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, if you're, seen, if you're a fighter a my mother, God rest her soul, back in two thousand eleven, she came down with brain cancer. She went through radiation and then it was time for chemotherapy and she said, You know what? I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Three months later she passed away. She just I I just think she lost that will to fight. If attitude is a precursor for longevity, Bill, you're gonna last for a long, long, <laughs> long time. And I do wish you continued health and well being. Thank you. I really appreciate you coming in here today on this very special episode. This I hope episode I wasn't too boring. <laughs> no. Listen, we do this because we say even if it helps one person. Your story I think is gonna help a lot of people. Whether it be first responders or not. Just anybody that, that's going through cancer, to have your positive outlook, like Kevin said, you'll probably outlive me. <laughs> you could come to my funeral. You'll piss on my grave. That's, that's fine. <laughs> oh, I know I will. <laughs> oh, you'll, yeah. Well, you'll do something else on my grave. I, I want to live one day longer than you. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I, I don't have to be faster than a bear. I just got to be faster than you. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. That's, that's, that, uh, you're like... 50 years older than me, so don't worry about living longer than me. Oh, man. Unless tough. they come up with some different type of drug. I think I got you both. I'm 61. And 55. 55. I'm 21. I'm, I'm actually yeah. a week younger than Gino. He's actually one week older than me. You you remind him of that. Yeah, it's, all, it's the all the time. Yeah. This is my older friend, Gene. <laughs> one week. Well, Billy, thank you so much for joining us today. And I really want to talk about all the stuff that we learned. The biggest thing I've learned is that suffering is a choice and you never give up be grateful but most importantly never forget thank you for joining us on this episode of the suffering of 9-11 with billy bartholomew don't forget to follow us on instagram facebook and twitter we will see you on the next episode of the suffering podcast